This morning, we're going to be looking at the five reactions of the first Christmas, and we're going to be in the first part of Matthew and the first part of Luke, if you want to have your Bibles ready for that. It's great to see everybody here. I hope you had a blessed Thanksgiving weekend and a prosperous hunting season, if you were able to go. I uh, twisted my already kind of gimpy knee on the Thursday before the season opener, so I couldn't go hunting the first few days, and then I worked um, four 12-hour shifts in a row in the ER over Thanksgiving weekend, so that hunting season was pretty much a bust for me. I wasn't able to get out. But I'm hoping to get some time during the antlerless seasons that are coming up and be able to go out hunting. And on Thanksgiving, we were extremely busy during those four days, and there's a lot of cold and RSV and flu and COVID and everything else in the community and everybody has to come in and be told that they have the flu or RSV or COVID and to go home and drink plenty of water and stay away from people and take Tylenol, ibuprofen and wait it out because it's a virus and there's nothing we can do about it. And as we were running around, we finally got to a point at night that um, we were able to sit back at our stations and I'm going through a eight or nine charts that I'm behind on and trying to catch up on them and people are talking about all the stuff they're going to be doing on Black Friday and getting some Christmas shopping done and things like that and talking about traveling for family gatherings and meal planning and looking for trades to make the most of their time off since we don't have to work Christmas Eve or day on my shift and as I was listening to all the conversations going on around me and making sure I have everything good in the charts, it occurred to me that there was one thing missing in many of the plans that were being discussed that just was not being talked about at all. And that was the reason for the season, Jesus. We can get so wrapped up in our plans over what we call the Christmas season that we forget the reason for the season. And I can be just as guilty about that. It's, this isn't just a 21st century problem though. The same exact thing happened in the first century when Jesus first came. And many of their reactions mirror many of the same reactions that we see in our society today. So we're going to look at five different reactions about the birth of Jesus this morning and see if we can find ourselves a little bit and how we respond to this holiday and see if it matches up with any of these historic people. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Father, that you use this message this morning to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, Father. All of us have been through many Christmases. All of us have been, especially as adults, all of us have been through this season before. For many people, it's exhausting. For many people, it's something that they look forward to, but then hope it gets over quickly. And Father, I ask, Lord, that you just give us a new perspective, Lord, a new sense of joy, a new sense of even purpose for this season, Lord. Give us that wonder that we once had as children about the Christmas season. And help this message and, and the words I speak this morning judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart so that they may be found to be good and pleasing in your sight, Lord. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. So this morning we're going to start with the first reaction to the first Christmas. And we're going to see that in the Magi. 
And what we see in the Magi was a curiosity. In Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Down to verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, of all the accounts of the first Christmas, nobody is more mysterious than the Magi. We really don't know a lot about them, other than they were men of science. And back in their day, science also included some mysticism. So they kind of um, went to the supernatural and to what we would call science today. We know that they came from an area that is today known as Iraq, but really they were still under the Persian Empire that was governed by Iran. They were most likely descendants of men who were trained by the prophet Daniel. So they would have been very well versed in Hebrew writings and prophecy. And they also would have known from the prophet Daniel the approximate time that the Hebrew Messiah was to appear on earth. They would have been looking for some sign that the king of kings was going to be born. So the appearance of this huge star at night must have been intriguing enough for them to set off on a very dangerous journey that was between, depending where they came from, if they came from Babylon, which would be modern-day Mosul, it would be about a 600 to 1,000-mile journey, depending which route they took, to get from that area to Jerusalem. About four to six months to get there, with a notable detour into Herod's courts to ask for directions. They didn't quite know where they were going. And, that's, and that, ladies, is why we know they were wise men. They actually stopped to ask for directions. I bring up the curiosity of the Magi because many people refuse to believe the Bible or Christianity because they claim to be people of science. Oh, I can't trust that stuff. That science has disproven the Bible. Well, science and faith are not mutually exclusive. I heard a person say even this week that science enabled humanity to toss aside the myths that our parents grew up with, like Christianity. But these same people forget that many of the early scientists were Christians, most of them, in fact. Christians who are curious about how did God do that? How did God design the universe? What laws are in effect? Why do we stick to the ground and not float off into the sky? There's different questions that they asked, and they did experiments to figure it out. I found over 50, and I'll just read a quick five of the Christian scientists over the last um, several hundred years that I found. Robert Boyle, man who defined much of modern chemistry, said that the understanding of science was the glorification of God, just seeing how he did it. Gregory Mendel, another Christian, 
discovered the rules of heredity, of heredity. He was actually a monk in the Catholic Church. Sir Isaac Newton wrote the laws of gravity, motion, invented the reflecting telescope, and invented calculus. So anybody who had to go to college and take advanced math and calculus, you can punch Sir Isaac Newton when you get to heaven. You don't want to learn calculus, trust me. Um, one that's close to my heart, Florence Nightingale. Felt God called her to unselfish service. Transformed the field of nursing into what it is today and was the first to insist on proper hand hygiene in the hospital. Did you know that prior to Florence Nightingale, surgeons and doctors would never wash their hands? Even before performing surgery? And then wondering why their people their people kept dying right after surgery from massive infections. She single-handedly is credited for increasing life expectancy by 20 years in the areas that she served, just insisting on proper hygiene. Samuel Morris, inventor of the telegraph, which is a progenitor of the computer or cell phone that many of us have in our pockets, our hands, or our purses right now. So science and faith are not exclusive. They don't have to be one or the other. And it definitely wasn't exclusive to the Magi. And like the Magi, most people during this time of year are open and curious about the Christian story. So I would encourage you during this time to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Maybe it'll be at a family gathering. Maybe it'll be out in the public. Just be ready to explain the story and what it means to you and what it means um, potentially for them. The second reaction we see is that of Herod and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And the reaction that we see from them is fear. In Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. So both Herod's reaction, as well as the religious leaders, were pretty close to what we experience in today's culture. Fear mixed with a certain apathy. Herod, specifically, was afraid of a king who would rise up and take his position away. You have to remember that Herod was not a true king. He was a vassal king. He served at the pleasure of whoever Caesar was in Rome. His family was placed in that position when the Greeks conquered Palestine and managed to maintain their hold on power by bending the knee to Rome when Rome conquered Greece. And interestingly, the religious leaders had the same problem as Herod did. They loved their positions. They loved 
being called rabbi in the marketplace. They loved being wealthy. They loved being looked up to and didn't really want anything to upset that apple cart. A new king coming would upset that, so they were pretty apathetic to say the least, and most were probably hostile to that question by the Magi. I mean, imagine if somebody came up to us this morning and say, hey, is there supposed to be a Messiah born tomorrow? You know, I, I, we would look at the scriptures and would we just say, oh yeah, he's over in independence here. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that was their reaction to this. I mean, if most of us, I think, we'd be in independence tomorrow looking for him, wouldn't we? But they were just kind of like, eh, yeah, who's going to be here? I mean, then they told Herod where he was to be born and where exactly to look. And the religious leaders knew what kind of man Herod was. They weren't ignorant that he was a, a megalomaniac and a murderer. He, they knew that he would slaughter anyone who threatened their place in the world. They knew that Herod would rather slaughter dozens of children than risk losing his comfortable place in the world. And Herod's reaction demonstrates this question for us today. How many people do you know are afraid to come to Christ because of what they would have to give up? We see that in the religious leaders, and we see that in Herod in this story. How many people refuse to come to Christ because they're worried about giving up something of this world? And, I mean, I know we all like our comforts. We all like our, our privileges. We all like our, our permissions to do what we think is going to bring us pleasure. And when we threaten a person's comfort or peace or strength, it's, it's a big deal. It's very hard for people to let that go. So I'll just encourage you, pray for those people and pray for ourselves because we all have these areas in, in our lives that we cling to instead of, provide, instead of taking what Jesus wants to give us. And Jesus wants to be the source of all of our happiness and joy. The third reaction that we see is one of doubt. We see that in Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He's serving in the temple, and as part of serving in the temple, they replace the showbread, they keep the candles and, and everything burning and burn incense and, and do everything like that. And he, his... Um, group was up for that day, so he's in the temple serving, and we pick up the story in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 11. It says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and unable to speak 
until the day this happens because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Isn't it interesting that a priest, the person who's supposed to believe and be close to God in relationship, is the one who doubts in this story? I mean, if you think about it, why, why Gabriel gave him such a harsh judgment. It wasn't his words so much as he, were, he was speaking the words of God, and that's why he was judged. But doubting God's word is what led to the fall of humanity in the first place, isn't it? Not believing that God said. And that's exactly the way Satan put it. Did God really say? So Zechariah being such a, an elevated person in the priesthood gets a very stern punishment here. And one of the, the principles in the Bible that we see is that they who have greater re revelation get judged at a greater level. James says this. He said, James said, not too many of you should desire to be teachers, for you will incur the ju greater judgment. God always judges based on the available revelation. So in Zechariah doubts, what God is speaking to him through the angel, he's made mute for a time. God is essentially saying, look, if you're not going to believe in my word, I'm taking away your ability to speak any words. That's why doubt is a direct enemy of faith. Faith isn't just believing some Pollyanna thing. It's believing that God's word is true. It's having faith that believes that no matter what evidence is in front of you, you're going to believe God's word. I think one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible is Daniel in the lion's den. God tells him he's going to save him. But then he's locked in there with them. The lions stand up, haven't been fed in a few days because they would starve the lions before they would throw people in there and the lions get up and start stalking toward him would you be a little nervous I would be or Shadrach Meshach and Abednego put in chains seeing the fire coming up out of the pit they're about to be thrown into you think they may have had some some doubts you know logic and common sense would show Either of these situations results in the death of these men. But what we have to remember is God is God. He can supersede the natural order anytime he wants. He can cancel the physical laws of nature anytime he wants. And all of a sudden, lions turned into kittens, came and nuzzled on Daniel. The fire was just got, gave them a nice suntan, and that was about it. And even more so, they saw Jesus walking with them in the fire. He may not save you from the fire, but he will walk through it with you. That's what we have faith in. So I would ask you, what situation are you dealing with right now? That seems to be the unsolvable problem. Do you feel like you're in a dark place with no light in sight? Just remember... God is God. Let him be God over that situation. 
Cast your cares upon him. And he will take that faith and walk with you through the valley and lead you out. The fourth reaction we see is one of obedience. And we see that in Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. In Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had it in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with him until she gave birth to a son, and, that, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons over the years, a lot of pastors be very critical of Joseph's initial response, like somehow he should have known exactly what God was going to do, or he should have believed Mary's story. I'd argue that he was actually being very merciful in this situation. Now, Jewish marriages were a little bit different. They would have about a year's worth of engagement where they were considered married, but they would not come together as husband and wife. So it was kind of like a long engagement where the man would then go build up a house, build up a business, do whatever it would take to take care of this new wife. And then after about a year, they would come together in the um, closing of the marriage ceremony and then consummate and become husband and wife. So Mary and Joseph are in this engagement, if you would, time, but they are still considered legally married. And as a man of Israel... Joseph is obligated to obey the law of Moses. And that's what he is doing here. And that law said that since Mary is pregnant before they came together as husband and wife, she has committed adultery. Now the law in its strictest sense said she should be brought before the city elders, tried and convicted of adultery, and then executed by stoning. If he wanted to be a stickler of the law, that's what he would have done. So Joseph chooses to be obedient to the law and to divorce Mary for her supposed adultery. But he doesn't want to see her harmed, so he decides to quietly divorce her and probably send her away from Nazareth so she will not come under the full punishment for the sin that he thought she committed. And he finds out through, eight, through Gabriel in a dream that God wants him to be the earthly father to his son. That's a heck of a dream. But what was his response to it? Obedience. He obeyed it. And think about it from Joseph's perspective. He got to teach Jesus his trade, how to be a carpenter. I mean, Joseph knows 
the words of Genesis. So imagine teaching the creator of the universe how to hold a hammer. Imagine teaching the person who said, let there be light, and there was light, how to level a chair, or how to plane wood, or how to make nails and different things like that. Yet Joseph was obedient to God's command over him and what God asked of him. And for that, he had the incredible honor of being the surrogate father to the Son of God. That just blows my mind when I think of everything that Joseph and Mary, raising Jesus, had to go through, or just the experience they had raising Jesus. And what Joseph shows us is that, there, is that obedience to God's word brings blessing. I really think that we all have blessings that are locked up in a room and they're locked away from us because of disobedience. And God can't give them to us because it would cause us more harm than good. Sometimes we're like the son of a father who wants to give his son a sports car for his 16th birthday. But the son is irresponsible, won't do his chores, won't do his homework. It can't be trusted to do just even the basic things. So giving him a sports car would actually not be an act of love. It would be an act of, I guess, cowardness or an act of, of not love to give that uh, boy a sports car because all he's going to do is drive too fast and wrap it around a tree, killing himself or somebody else. God's kind of the same way is that he can't give us blessings if we don't know how to use them, if we're going to misuse them. So a question for us is this. What blessing is God holding back from us because we have an area of disobedience in our life? We sometimes wonder, God, how come I can't get ahead? God, how come I can't, can't shake this thing? How come I, I can't just get, get what I need or what I want? Well, Maybe it's because there's an area of disobedience in your life. And God can't turn that over to you. The fifth reaction that we see is that of Mary. And we see in there joy and acceptance. In Luke 128, the Bible says that the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and considered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be, to be born will be called the Son of God. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now Mary's reaction to Jesus' coming was the correct one. Humble obedience followed by worship. Now keep in mind, Mary knew what this could mean for her. 
I mean, yes, she was a teenager. Yes, she was probably somewhere between 14 and 16 when this happened. But she still knew that, when, that if Joseph wanted it to be so, she was facing divorce, at the very least banishment from her hometown, or death by stoning. Yet her reaction was still humble praise to God. In fact, after this, Mary writes an entire song of praise to God. Where her relative Zechariah questioned God's ability to make his word come true, Mary accepted it and accepted God's plan for her life. In all the reactions we saw, we saw the curiosity of the Magi. We saw the fear and hostility of Herod and religious leaders. We saw the doubting of Zechariah. We saw the obedience of Joseph. We saw the acceptance of worship of Mary. I want to leave us with one bonus reaction this morning. And that is the shepherds. And in them we see wonder and worship. In Luke 2.18, it said there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I give you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in this town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. I've always found it to be very very significant that the announcement of the birth of the Messiah Jesus was first made to the lowest of the low. Shepherds were the lowest social group in existence during that time. It could be argued that they were considered to be only slightly above a Gentile slave in that society. They were the people that if you saw them walking down the street, you would cross the street so you wouldn't have to walk past them. That's how, how they were viewed. They were largely illiterate, probably very smelly, infested with any bugs that were, might be plaguing the sheep, and they were just considered the lowest of the low kind of people during that time. Yet who did God choose to make the first announcement of the actual birth of Jesus, the lowest of the low. Their reaction was wonder and awe, followed by worship. We should remember that this holiday season when we come across people who need to hear about the saving truth of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that no matter who they are, no matter how 
messed up, drunk, or whatever they may look like to you, they still need to hear the truth. They still need to hear the actual Christmas story. So this Christmas season, I encourage you to regress a little bit. To let your spirit slide back into being that as a child. Allow yourself to feel the wonder of the Christmas season. And not only the wonder of the gifts, the lights, and all the other things that go along with it, but it's meaning for all of us that God became flesh and walked among us. Let's all rise. Father God, I ask, Lord, that in this season of busyness, of focusing on earthly things, of gifts and meals and plans and lights and decorations and, and children and, and all these other things, Lord, that we focus our attention on, that you will have in front of our eyes the real reason for this season that you love the world so much, you took upon yourself flesh to walk among us. And let us also remember that the story of the baby in the wooden cradle ends with a man on a wooden cross. That you so love the world, you gave us your one and only son. Help us to carry that with us this Christmas season. And help us to be willing to share that with everyone we come into contact with, Lord. That same love, that same message still resonates today. Father God, I bless your people now. Let them be people of wonder, worship, obedience during this season. And let your blessing be upon them. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.